When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If it weren't for these dialogues, I think I wouldn't have found some key insights. It's been deeply important and meaningful. And I think that it will transform science. Even in the conversation I had with him directly during this meeting, it was clear that this terrain he knows well. And in some sense, my results were so familiar to him that he almost thought they were obvious. That's sort of shocking because it's taken us about 70 years of attention research in the field of cognitive neuroscience to really come to a clear answer to some of these questions. And to him, it was what he predicted and it's what he was happy to see, but wasn't surprised by it. Now, when I first sat down with the Dalai Lama, it was actually quite surprising. See, I had the stereotyped vision of an Asian spiritual master as kind of floating on a cloud. They're going to be kind of transcendent, eyes half closed, occasionally saying perhaps inscrutable things. But here, I'm sitting down across from him. I had this feeling I was across from a wrestler, you know, intellectually. He was taking my ideas and he was grabbing them and testing them. Most of the world knows the 14th Dalai Lama as a Buddhist monk, as a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, as one of the world's foremost spiritual figures. But not everyone knows him as a keen devotee of science. Since my childhood, I love technology. If I had not become Dalai Lama, I'd still remain in my native place. Then eventually, so I may be engineer or electrician. This is from the film Dalai Lama Scientist. Since childhood, always the curiosity to develop something new things to see. I always develop the question, why, why, how, how, always happy. The Dalai Lama is the spiritual leader of the Gelug School of Tibetan Buddhism and the highest spiritual leader of Tibet. Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama, is considered, like his predecessors, to be a manifestation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. At age two, he was recognized to be the reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama, and he began his monastic education at age six. Science and math weren't part of his curriculum, but in the Patala Palace where he spent his winters, he stumbled upon some mechanical objects that had belonged to the 13th Dalai Lama, including a telescope, a pocket watch, and some film projectors. I always prefer play one movie projector which belongs to the 13th Dalai Lama because it's uh, quite old, so quite often you see breakdown. Small dynamo, produce electricity. Then I began to realize AC, DC, how it works. So then gradually it developed interest for science. The Dalai Lama used the telescope to observe the moon and the stars, and the pocket watch to develop skills in dismantling and reassembling clocks. Small first steps on what would become a lifelong journey through the world of technology and science. There was a time when I would rather fiddle with these objects than study philosophy, he writes in his book, The Universe in a Single Atom. They hinted at a whole universe of experience and knowledge to which I had no access and whose existence was endlessly tantalizing. 
Over the decades, the Dalai Lama sought out many scientists on his international travels. His circle eventually included major scientific figures, like physicist philosopher Carl van Weizsäcker and theoretical physicist David Bohm. David Bohm, von Weizsäcker, and some other great scientists. Uh, these people become my friend, and not only friend, but von Weizsäcker and David Bohm, I consider my own teacher of, of physics. Quantum physics had come along in the 20th century and totally upset the reigning scientific picture of the universe. It even disturbed some people's spiritual picture of the universe. But for the Dalai Lama, quantum physics strangely reaffirmed some central Buddhist spiritual truths. This is Illuminations, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas about the complex and captivating relationship of religion and science. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we explore the disconcerting revolution that quantum physics wrought in the scientific world, and the surprising ways that this new physics inspired one of the world's great spiritual leaders. To understand the disruptiveness of quantum physics, you first have to understand classical physics. The father of classical physics was Sir Isaac Newton. In The Fabric of the Cosmos, Columbia University physicist Brian Greene explains. With a handful of mathematical equations, Newton synthesized everything known about motion on Earth and in the heavens, and in so doing, composed the score for what has come to be known as classical physics. Classical physics saw the universe as working like a machine. Its movements were regular, orderly, and predictable by anyone who understood the mechanism. With Newton's elegant equations, physicists could perfectly describe how physical objects would behave. This universe was deterministic. There was only one way physical events could unfold, and mathematical equations could tell you what that would be. For example, Newton's second law of motion, the equation force equals mass times acceleration, would allow you to launch a projectile and calculate precisely when and where it would fall. Newton was a devout believer in a supremely intelligent creator, and these predictable and decipherable universal laws of physics reinforced his faith in divine creation. Here's Newton in his own words. Blind fate could never make all the planets move one and the same way in orbs concentric, some inconsiderable irregularities accepted. This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. Classical physics, with its orderly equations, reflected this beautiful system. However, in the early 20th century, this picture of predictable perfection began to break down. In 1924, the French physicist Louis de Broglie proposed a shocking new theory about electrons. Electrons are elementary particles, particles that can't be broken down into smaller components. Along with protons and neutrons, electrons form the nucleus of an atom, the basic building block of matter. Until this time, these tiny particles were thought to behave just like tiny lumps of matter. But de Broglie proposed that electrons behave not as distinct, predictable particles, but instead as a, quote, wave of probabilities. In 1926, the physicist Erwin Schrödinger advanced a similar idea in a new quantum theory of wave mechanics. Scott Bembenek explained its implications in Scientific American. Unlike a classical particle, 
A quantum particle doesn't move along a well-defined physical path with well-defined values for its key properties, such as position, momentum, energy and the like, at every instant in time. Such physical quantities are determined entirely by an inherent quantum probability. Newton's classical physics could still help us predict the behavior of larger objects in the world. But when it came to the smallest level of reality, that predictability disappeared. We could not say how the electrons would behave. We could only give the probabilities for different ways they might behave. In other words, we don't have a fully knowable deterministic system anymore. We have a probabilistic system, one we can never fully know. That system is called quantum physics. One of the implications of these early meanderings into, into the quantum domain was this loss of classical determinism. This is Vassar College professor of physics and astronomy, Jose Perion. Now, it doesn't mean that things aren't causal. Things were still causal. You know, cause and effect was still there. But what arose out of the quantum theory and quantum physics was that at the microscopic level, things were probabilistic, right? And the best we could do was to figure out possible outcomes of interactions and observations of things in terms of their probabilistic measurements. Not so in the new system. In 1927, the German physicist Werner Heisenberg concluded that the position and the velocity of a subatomic particle, like an electron, could not be precisely measured at the same time. If you measured one, the other remained uncertain. If I was gonna measure the position of a particle, you know, what is the probability of finding a particle in a certain position, right? And that's very different from uh, the idea of, in a classical domain, saying, well, I'm going to measure the particle. I'm just going to take out my tape measure, my you know, ruler, and I'm going to measure it right here, right? And it's a fixed point. So things went from being able to measure deterministically and figure out, you know, if I know where it is, I can know where it's going, if I know the velocity and I know the, I know the mass and I, so I have the momentum and I, I can figure out using classical physics pretty much everything about my system. But if you undermine the basic you know, layer of that by saying there is no set position of this particle, you know, it's a probabilistic curve, then the future becomes contingent, not determined. And that's really something that was very difficult for people to wrap their mind around that the notion of determinism had been had been lost at the microscopic level and everything was based off or built on the microscopic level so if you're losing that determinism at the microscopic level then, then what does it say about the macroscopic right um, and so these were the things that people were struggling with all of a sudden physics wasn't just a set of clear facts that you could measure it was an imperfect guide to a world that appeared to be unknowable at its core some scientists eagerly embraced this new notion of physics and the world. Two in particular were Heisenberg and the Danish physicist Niels Bohr. From 1924 to 1927, they worked together at Bohr's Institute for Theoretical Physics in Copenhagen. They developed an early understanding of quantum physics that came to be known as the Copenhagen Interpretation. In the program, The Mind-Bending Story of Quantum Physics, Professor Jim Al-Khalili discusses this new quantum world they proposed. Some of its strangest qualities emerged in what's called the double-slit experiment. Individual electrons were shot through a screen with two slits in it. But instead of passing through one slit or the other, the electrons created patterns that almost suggested they were passing through both slits at the same time, behaving not like a physical object with a definite position, 
but more like a wave of chance, of possible positions. It's hard to overstate just how crazy this is. Bohr was effectively claiming that one can never know where the electron actually is at all until you measure it. And it's not just that you don't know where the electron is. It's weirdly as though the electron itself is everywhere at once. Bear in mind that electrons are among the commonest and most basic building blocks of reality. And yet, here's Bohr saying that only by looking do we actually conjure their position into existence. And this view, ladies and gentlemen, became known as the Copenhagen interpretation. Some physicists found the idea of quantum mechanics much more unsettling than did Bohr and Heisenberg. The randomness and uncertainty lurking within what had once seemed a perfectly orderly universe was disturbing. It particularly upset the famous physicist Albert Einstein. Michio Kaku described him this way in a History Channel documentary on Einstein. Einstein once said, I want to know God's thoughts in a mathematical way. Einstein wanted an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would encapsulate all physical laws. The beauty, the majesty, the power of the universe into a single equation. That was his life's goal. The elegance of Newton's equations was more to Einstein's taste than the bizarre chaos of quantum physics. Einstein was raised in a Jewish household and grew averse to formal religion, but his notion of God had something in common with Newton's Christian idea of a supremely wise creator who built an orderly, intelligible world. Einstein believed, he said, in a God who, quote, reveals himself in the lawful harmony of all that exists. Einstein's conception of the universe was deterministic, just like the world of Newtonian physics. He is quoted as saying, everything is determined, the beginning as well as the end, by forces over which we have no control. We all dance to a mysterious tune, intoned in the distance by an invisible player. When questioned about his theism or his belief in that invisible player, he answered, I have no better expression than the term religious for this trust in the rational character of reality and in its being accessible, at least to some extent, to human reason. But quantum physics made the world far less rational and far less accessible. In a 1926 letter to the physicist Max Born, Einstein protested against the new physics and the uncertainty at its heart. The theory produces a good deal, but hardly brings us closer to the secret of the old one. I am at all events convinced that he does not play dice. He thought quantum physics was too ghostly to be valid. He called the speculative concept of quantum entanglement spooky action at a distance. And when he saw some enthusiastic adherents of Bohr and Heisenberg promoting the new theories with the zeal of religious converts, he regarded them with disdain. He says the Heisenberg-Bohr tranquilizing philosophy, any questions or religion, question mark, provides a gentle pillow for the true believer from which he cannot very easily be aroused. This is Einstein really asking, this is no longer just kind of physics uh, in the ideal sense. These people are really pushing this interpretation, this orthodox interpretation of, of quantum theory, what became the Copenhagen interpretation as, you know, kind of 
in a propagandist kind of way. They're not just pushing it, making rational arguments, but they're really pushing it uh, in this way that we might associate with religion or with politics. At the birth of quantum physics, scientists were split in their response. Some found this bizarre, inexplicable new cosmos exhilarating, while others found it repellent. When Einstein made his remark at a conference about how God does not play dice, Niels Bohr supposedly retorted, it cannot be for us to tell God how he is to run the world. Well, if this was the way it was run, it wasn't a world Einstein could embrace. Here's Jim Al-Khalili again. Many people couldn't stomach Niels Bohr's outlandish ideas, and they found a natural leader in the most powerful man in science. Albert Einstein hated this interpretation with every fiber of his being. He famously said, does the moon cease to exist when I don't look at it? Einstein was unhappy because he didn't like the idea that there could be limits to knowledge, that the horizon of our understanding might be finite. He wanted a better underlying theory of everything. For the next 10 years, Einstein and Bohr debated passionately about whether quantum mechanics meant giving up on a knowable reality. Quantum physics defied Einstein's idea of God and of what God's world ought to be like. But not everyone found this new world such a spiritual threat. This is physicist Anton Zeilinger describing his reaction to quantum physics. We can very well handle this kind of paradoxical situations we have been talking about mathematically. And we can confirm them in experiment with very high precision. But we still do not know conceptually what is going on. Why is the world so strange? And what I want to see someday before I pass away, that someone explains to me why it is strange. <laughs> so I want to... So I want to learn new concepts, and, and this is a place, and there were some new concepts brought out in, in your discussion, which are very interesting for me. These last remarks were addressed to none other than the Dalai Lama himself. In 1987, the Dalai Lama began convening a series of dialogues between spiritual leaders and scientists that became known as the Mind and Life Dialogues, and that covered a wide range of scientific topics. Here's the Dalai Lama in his own words describing these dialogues. Since over 30 years, uh, we developed serious discussion with uh, many scientists, mainly from America, five fields, cosmology, quantum physics, psychology, neuroscience, then biology. The Dalai Lama didn't feel that scientific research posed a threat to his religious beliefs. In The Universe in a Single Atom, he wrote, quote, If scientific analysis were conclusively to demonstrate certain claims in Buddhism to be false, then we must accept the findings of science and abandon those claims. But in fact, the Dalai Lama found harmony, not contradiction, between the findings of quantum physics and the tenets of Buddhism. Physics, uh like quantum physics, very similar. The mathematical philosophy's view, nothing exists by objectively. Wonderful. For the Dalai Lama, quantum randomness and chaos was less threatening than intriguing. In his words, 
Scientists, as well as philosophers, have to live constantly with conflicting models of reality. The Newtonian model, assuming a mechanical and predictable universe, and relativity and quantum mechanics, assuming a more chaotic cosmos. The idea that the universe is built, at its core, on unpredictability showed a disparity between the way the world really is and the way that we perceive it. For the Dalai Lama, this disparity is a familiar one. In Rotterdam in 2018, and with the help of a translator, he discussed the similarities between Buddhism and quantum physics. All the teachings of the Buddha have been really presented from the point of view of the true truths. And he who does not understand the true truths cannot understand the essence of the Buddha's teaching. So what we are talking about here is the two levels of reality. One is the ultimate level of reality, which is the emptiness, where nothing can be found. But there is also another level of reality, which is the conventional relative level, on which causes and effects and everything function. And this ability to distinguish between two levels of reality and two truths and understanding existence in terms of these two becomes very important. In other words, Buddha is saying that it's not that nothing exists, but things don't exist in the way in which we tend to assume they do. They don't exist as they appear to us. This is what quantum physics have also discovered. As they go deeper into their understanding of what makes up the physical world, they don't find anything. So they have come to realize that there is nothing that supports the objective reality of the material world that we assume. But in some sense, what the quantum physics have come to is very similar to what Buddhism has also come to. Classical physics still works to describe the reality we perceive around us. In our everyday experience, physical events don't appear as random. We can still launch a projectile and calculate when and where it would fall with equations like Newton's. But what quantum physics showed is that reality is nothing like our perceptions. This is the core insight that quantum physics and Buddhism share. Things aren't what our senses take them to be. Einstein was awed at the orderly, knowable structure of the world. But the Dalai Lama found spiritual significance in its strangeness. Jose Perion studied both science and religion as an undergraduate. For him, truth is something we can legitimately explore from many angles. People would always ask, well, how are you studying those two things? They're so polar opposite. And I was like, well, I'm exploring the unknown in two different ways, right? There's a lot of scientists like to think of these as completely um, separate domains, right? This is, you know, the idea that religion sits over here and science is over here. They're completely separate. Um, and, you know, you're either in one or, or you're in the other. And to some degree, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think that they are different they are different ways of, of exploring and experiencing and, and, and engaging the world. Um, but I, I, I think it's limited to always be so rigid in terms of the boundaries because there's a lot of unknowns in science and there's a lot of, obviously, you know, religion is bathed in unknowns and it's, and it's the same, you know, there, there, many times these unknowns are similar and they're, you're playing off of the, uh, of the same kind of experience of the world that's unknown, and they're just different explanations of it. Scientific fields like quantum physics and spiritual traditions like Buddhism are both explorations of the unknown. And there's harmony in this shared path, as the Dalai Lama recognizes. Spirituality and science are different but complementary investigative approaches with the same greater goal, he wrote.
That goal is seeking the truth. I'm a simple Buddhist monk, but at the same time, uh, eventually I become very close with scientists. In our training, reason becomes very important. So this scientific way, it compels us. Now think how to utilize their findings, translate into action, new ideas, new way. The religious impulse is often grounded in awe and wonder at the idea of something great and strange that transcends our universe. But sometimes the strangeness and complexity within our universe can provoke the same odd response, a response of curiosity, not fear, and a desire to understand and embrace that strangeness. This episode was produced by Samantha Worcester and Maria Devlin-McNair. Illuminations is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. We are supported by Harvard Divinity School and the John Templeton Foundation. Illuminations is produced by me, Zachary Davis, Leah Reckman, Maria Devlin-McNair, and Nick Anderson. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. And artwork is by Dan Pecci. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to get in touch, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of carefully crafted, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I wanted to tell you about a show I think you'll enjoy, Play On Podcasts epic audio adventures that reimagine Shakespeare's timeless tales, featuring original music composition and the voices of award-winning actors. Each episode explores plays from Macbeth to A Midsummer's Night Dream in a way that you can actually understand it and created specifically for the podcast form by some of America's most exciting playwrights, directors, and composers, and performed by stage and screen's best. Look out for their new series, Measure for Measure, and hear Shakespeare like you've never heard before. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.